with me if you have a Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you're not used to using a Bible, you can use the black ones around the seats in front of you. And that could be found on page 276 in those black Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. I'd encourage you to check it out. It's pretty good. We want to center our whole church and our whole lives around what it has to say. And although it's a big book and it's got a lot of stuff in it that might be confusing, it's still worth checking out. We're going to dive into the end of a king's life and his final words and just look at two short sentences, two short stanzas of a song-like poem about ruling from a king who was the kind of prototypical best king of a nation called Israel. Before I read this text to you in 2 Samuel 23, I'm going to summarize something from a book called The Rule of Love by one of the guys that mentored me named Jonathan Lehman. He explains that we live in a world where it's okay to be spiritual, but not too religious. Spirituality is okay as long as that's good for you, but you do not demand your religion and your spirituality on me. That is dangerous. This world that we live in has an idea that love has no moral boundaries or judgments. For in fact, love is the definition of boundaries and judgments. It establishes all boundaries and judgments. Have you noticed the way in our world you can justify almost anything by saying it's motivated by love? Love justifies extramarital affairs, divorce, cohabitation, lacking discipline to one's child, speaking dishonestly, and so, so much more. We live in a world where love means unconditional acceptance, and there's no room for judgment. This world we live in, love and authority have nothing to do with each other. In our minds, authority restrains, but love sets us free. Authority exploits, but love empowers. Authority steals life from us, and love is what has come to save us. In other words, we live in a world where Love is anti-institutional. Institutions impose authority on our relationships. Institutions have rules and structures in our minds. The words love and institutions just don't go together. Love is what helps a relationship. Institutions are what hurt them. And this means we live in a world where we are inherently suspicious of everything that a church does that smacks any sense of institutionalism or authority. This includes any talk about church membership, church discipline, or last week's sermon on leadership structures. The majority of churchgoers today want a church where you can show up, enjoy the show, sing, laugh, develop friendships, and maybe once or twice serve at a soup kitchen. We do not want a church where there is commitment, covenants, and somebody correcting us. That is legalistic and authoritarian. In other words, we don't like the idea of authority, especially at church. 
I will suggest I think there's two problems with this kind of thinking. The first is that every day your life depends on authority, structures, rules. If you go to the hospital, you appreciate the procedures to keep you alive, or building codes at your office building, or traffic laws that prevented all of us from getting into car accidents this snowy April day of spring. You appreciate parental responsibilities when they're done well, or marriage covenants that keep married couples together, or rules in your office so there's a sense of order, laws in the state, grammar to the English language, rules in your sporting events as you watch sports playoffs or baseball games. Authority is the glue that enables us to live in societies together. Apart from authority, all of life would be shaped by the preferences of the moment. You would have no traditions, no predictability of behavior, no stability or meaning to our lives. There would be no sense of shared morality. We need authority. Second problem with this idea that we don't like authority is that by hating authority, it shows how much we really do love it. It's just that we want that authority to be only over ourselves. There is an impulse inside of each one of our broken hearts that causes us to say, you have no right, fill in the blank. Who do you think you are to tell me that? Jonathan Lehman says, we are like a spring-loaded person ready to jump to battle whenever anyone trespasses into our territory. So what do we do? We have the problem that we actually do love authority, self-authority, which then makes us weary and suspicious of church authority or institutional authority. Is it true that authority is inherently unloving? It seems essential for coordinating our lives together. We don't want just anyone driving in a car, do we? With that, let's read 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Let's read that one more time. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. My comments this morning on this passage will have three basic points. One, Authority defined. Two, authority described. And three, authority displayed. Let's work through each of these one at a time, and let's take first authority defined. Authority is not the same thing as power. Power is someone's just raw ability. Authority is your position and using that power that you have for that position. For example, 
My 12-year-old daughter might have the ability or power to drive my car, but she does not possess the authority to do so until she has a learner's permit or a driver's license. Therefore, authority is the permission that allows judgments of the use of one's power to a particular area or domain. So when we're talking about ruling and having authority, this applies throughout today's message in various ways. Government officials and politicians ruling the state. Fathers and mothers ruling the home. Executives in the workplace. And pastors and elders in the church. We're going to especially think about that last one, though. The authority and rule in the church. As we take this three-week series, we're in the middle of it. Last week, we considered who the officers and leaders of the church are and what they should look like. Today, we're going to see what is this idea of them having authority to begin with because of the day and the world we live in. This seems like an important topic, as hopefully you will find quite obvious. And then next week, on Easter Sunday, we will consider the very center and heart of the church, the very purpose of structures, rules, leaders, institutions, is for the church to, like a prong on a diamond ring, hold up and display the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Ladies, your engagement rings, your jewelry is not beautiful to anyone here if it is not displayed and held up. If it is hiding in your purse or pocket, No one will marvel at its beauty. In the same way, the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel message of resurrection hope, the whole reason Christianity exists is because of the resurrection of Jesus. We will spend all of next week meditating, contemplating, thinking about the diamond gospel that the church is supposed to be in this position to hold up and to display. This is why you exist, church. You are not the diamond. You are the prongs. So, As we consider pastors and elders who have authority, positions given by God, what is it that we mean in that realm and domain? Well, it means that they have the right to do what God has determined. Authority does not mean you have the absolute right to do whatever you please. All positions of authority, regardless if it's in the church or outside of the church, is authority underneath of God. God alone has absolute and unquestionable authority. He can, and when he wants, tell us what to do about anything. That's what it means to be God. He can tell you what to eat or drink, what to wear, whom you should sleep with, whom you should or should not get married to, how long you should stay in that marriage. He has the right, and he has, in fact, spoken on many of these matters. The authority of God is ultimate and final. And we do not have the right to remove him from office because we never put him there in the first place. Now we do ignore him. But no matter how long you ignore him, you are not voting him out. God alone is the ultimate authority and sovereign ruler over everything. And he has the right to rule and make judgments and exercise his complete sovereign power over all of us. Human authority is limited. It's always limited. It's something that we are given. It's an office we step into. Parents, you became a parent because God gave you children. Husbands, you have authority because God gave you a wife and instituted the covenant of marriage. That was not your idea. That was not human civilization's invention. This was given to us by God. 
And so we could go, citizens of a nation, church members of a church, pastors serving as elders, policemen, congressmen. Our authority is borrowed from God, which means God sets the limits and purposes. So then, what does our text have to say about what God does to set the limits or parameters for our authority? And look at 2 Samuel 23.3. It says, ruling justly over men and ruling in the fear of the Lord. You'll notice in our definition of authority, godly authority has two simple parts, ruling justly and walking in the fear of the Lord. Ruling justly, that word justice, it means to be equitable, to be fair, to seek the well-being of those under your care. And I believe that these two ideas are paralleling one another and related to each other. You will rule justly and fairly and equitably when you fear God. Godly authority rules in the fear of God because when you fear God, you know you're ultimately accountable to him. You cannot do whatever you want and think that you have unlimited reign over anybody underneath of you. You will rule justly when you know there are consequences to your actions and that God, the ultimate ruler and judge, will return and make everything right. Therefore, the definition of godly authority is justice and in the fear of God. Now, we know that this definition of godly authority has too often been abused. Parents abuse children. Pastors abuse congregants, bosses discriminate against certain classes of workers, political leaders take bribes, powerful people in their positions of authority prey on the weak. So what do we mean when we talk about church authority as spiritual abuse? If we know that this is what godly authority looks like, what does it mean for a pastor to abuse the godly authority and be unfair and not rule in the fear of God. And here on the screen behind me, you will see a definition of spiritual abuse that I found quite helpful. And it says this, spiritual abuse is when a religious person or a group, so whether an individual or a group of leaders or an entire congregation, so a person or group, use their position or spiritual power to control or dominate another person in the name of God by taking advantage of the person's vulnerability to gratify their own needs. Whether those be needs of pleasure, power, success. I think one story to illustrate this that has been seared in my mind was a pastor friend of mine who said that he was a youth minister, so not the senior pastor type position. He was a youth minister at a church. And he learned about how his senior pastor that he was submitting under was in an affair, an adulterous affair with a woman in the church. He thought this wasn't right. I don't know about you, but I would hope that you would think that's not right. You find out that your pastor is committing adultery, what should we do? Last week, reprove, rebuke, and remove. So that's exactly what this friend tried to do. He went and took it to the leadership board, and he sat down and said, listen, I have really good evidence to believe that our pastor is committing adultery. And around the table, 
each man told stories. Stories about how the pastor had helped them when their wife passed away. Stories about how when they had a very difficult time, he was there for them. On and on it went about how this pastor had so loved them that he had complete ability to do whatever and not one leader stood up and said, yes, we need to do something about this. How deceptive is spiritual authority? Where pastors doing what they should do, caring and loving, taking care of, but then having that and leveraging that power to get away with whatever they want. This story has been told way too often. So I'd like to propose five questions of application to help teach all of you how to recognize spiritual abuse. Question one. Do you notice yourself or other people hating to go to church but afraid to tell anybody? Question number one, do you personally or do others around you hate church for some reason and it seems like they're afraid to tell anybody about it? If you whiff any of that, there's a good chance that somebody is being spiritually abused and preyed upon. Question two, do you or somebody you know in your church feel guilty for missing just a single event or meeting or service at the church? It wasn't too long ago where somebody, in fact, said that to me about this church, that they felt like any time they missed, that it was like somebody would reach out to them and tell them, hey, where were you? And for them, they perceived that communication as like, well, what's wrong with you? You need to come, and if you don't come, then shame on you. You're not a good enough Christian. You're not following the Lord enough. I personally believe that that perception was misguided, my pastoral response was to help this person see that I think they just loved you. I think they just wanted to know, hey, what was going on? We missed you. Be sure to know the difference between those things. But if you notice that somebody is either perceived or actually feeling like, if I miss one thing at this church, it seems like everybody is on me, like dogs, hounds. The Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 10, we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's a command of scripture. It is for your good. But we should not take commands of the Bible and twist them and put them on as heavy yokes and realize that some people get sick. Some people have vacations they go on. Some people have jobs where they have to travel. And if we treat the Bible as some sort of heavy yoke, when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, we are misusing the authority of the scriptures as we apply it to people's lives. Question three, do you find yourself giving time and money to the church so that God will bless you even greater? Especially a specific way. Many times the blessing you get is not necessarily a monetary blessing back. Anytime you feel the slight feeling or, or hint that somebody is giving to the church and it is so that they then are sowing a seed so that then they get 10 times or 100 times more and that their bank account's going to be full because they gave to some church. This means that they are underneath of spiritual abuse. Somebody taking the Bible, Using the authority of God and say, God told you to do this, and therefore guilt-tripping them into giving so that they then have this false idea that they're going to get more on the other end. 
many times the more that you get on the other end is not tangible. It is the joy of being set free from the idolatry of money. It is the joy of knowing Jesus more than anything else that fades in this world. The joy of having a relationship with God where everything else could just go away and you're like, I have all that I need and so much more. That's what giving is much more about than getting some sort of material, specific blessing back. Question four. Do you or someone that you know feel like God will punish you if you make any kind of mistake? This is the spiritual abuse of hypersensitive, you just need to stand up to some sort of standard, and if you don't, then God's wrath is upon you. The message of this church, the diamond that we uphold, is that we are saved by grace, and grace alone, through faith alone, not by any works, but it is a gift from God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know and understand that the basic message of Christianity is a gift of salvation. It is a free gift. We are not here because we've got it all together and that we should be measuring up to one another. We should all be here. As the old saying goes, we have found some bread. We are poor, hungry people, and we have found some bread. And all we're doing as we share and reach out to other people is not say, oh, well, you haven't found the bread. No, we're poor beggars. Come, there's bread. Eat. That's the nature of the church. And so when a church is starting to use its message or its Bible to then start beaming down on people with those laser eyes and saying, oh, what's wrong with you? And you feel judged and guilty all the time and you can't make one single mistake and there's not grace, that is spiritual abuse. Whether it's from an entire community of people or an individual. It has no place here at Embassy Church if our message is that of grace and forgiveness. Question five. Do you think that you need to work harder so that God will forgive you? All of these questions are examples of ways for us to diagnose if somebody is using the Bible inappropriately, the authority of God, God has said, and then applying it to you, and so destroying your life. The abuse of authority is almost always a dehumanizing authoritarianism. All of us, if we would admit it, have taken our roles that we have been given, whatever authority that might be, and in small ways and in big ways, we have abused it, and we have abused others. I can confess, as a pastor of Embassy Church, there have been times where I have unhelpfully said things that somebody said in confidence that I had no right to share with someone else. I have abused my spiritual authority, the confidence of sharing something secret or private. I do not take that lightly. And I believe all of us should demand that our pastors and those who are in counseling sessions would have a sense of confidence and trust from those in spiritual authority. I'm not confessing that because I think it's some sort of epidemic and that if you ever share anything with me, I'm going to post it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I'm just saying that that's one way I want to own up and say I am not a perfect pastor or leader. And if I had to guess, if you put all of your hope in me, I will let you down again. The solution, therefore, is to repent of our self-rule and self-love and trust and the ultimate authority 
that's given to Jesus Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. He provides the forgiveness of sin, and through that gospel message, we can rule on Christ's behalf in the spirit that he gives us. This is point one, authority defined. Let's move on to point two. Our passage, one of the reasons I chose it was because of its description, its beautiful poetic description of authority, authority described. Look again at verse four with me at 2 Samuel 23. He dawns on them like the morning light. The he is the one in verse three who is ruling over men justly and in the fear of God. He then is dawning on them like the morning light, like light that is shining from the sun on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The authority described here in our text is two simple descriptions. A, like the morning sun, and B, like the spring rain, or we should say snow this morning, strangely enough. Let's think about these metaphors and just meditate on them for a moment. First, godly authority when it's done justly and rightly and in the fear of God, it is like the morning sun. What, what's the morning sun? It's the first break of dawn, the first light that pierces through the darkness. Take the image a little further. Imagine you're in a dark place. It's been a whole night of just darkness. And then the sun dawns. Then light bursts forth. And then as it rises, it gets brighter and greater intensity. After a long night when things are confusing and disorienting, when there's chaos and misery, a leader who has godly authority is like the bright morning sun. Historically speaking, we think of David who is giving us these words. And we should think of his personal life as the sun rising after a dark, dark season. If you've never done so, read the book of Judges sometimes. The whole book is summarized in this one verse. There was no king in Israel. There was no godly ruler or person of authority. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when you read Judges you will see what that kind of anarchy produces. And so then a king was given to Israel, and Saul did no better until David, like the bright morning sun, was given, and he was like a new day has dawned. His reign was like the sun shining and rising over the people of Israel. In other words, this first picture of the sun on a new day is a picture of hope. It inspires hope, For any of you that have been abused, last week we were reading through a passage in our service and it said that, woe to the shepherds of Israel for the way they have abused the sheep, the flock of God. He said, I will scatter the sheep and I will put them under new shepherds. Anytime a pastor or an elder or someone abuses their authority, God in his righteous justice will make things right. And he will take those underneath of your care if you abuse your authority. And he will give them to someone else who will rightly be like the sun shining after the darkness of your day. Embassy Church, 
What a beautiful picture for us to aspire to. In a community like the northwest suburbs of Chicago that have seen just awful tragedies of spiritual abuse in recent years. What better prayer than for this congregation, for your elders, for us to collectively be like the new sun rising over the dark clouds of a dark and chaotic season in many churchgoers' lives. I want you to pray that God would protect us from spiritual abuse. I want you to pray and long for that this church would in fact be a place of hope for those who are refugees from churches and pastors and congregations that have abused Christians. The second image is that of the spring rain. What does the spring rain do when it's not snowing? It promotes life and growth. A warm spring rain. The sun is shining in this picture, and then the rain is falling. The sun is beaming down and producing life after the rain has come down. Godly leaders are like the spring rain. They give and they promote life. They create a culture and environment where people underneath of them will flourish to fulfill their God-given potential. People who feel squelched or they feel like there's this taskmaster, or they feel like there's micromanaging, they will never have the beauty of this godly authority where the spring rain gives life. So the contrast we're thinking through is light and life, health and prosperity, and spiritual abuse is the darkness and death to those underneath of spiritual abusers. It is famine and it is drought. If you would, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 72. Just a few pages, quite a few, over to your right. Psalm 72. In these black Bibles, you can find it on page 485. I'm convinced Psalm 72 is a longer and more fuller meditation on the truth in 2 Samuel 23 that we've been considering. So if you'd like to take a deeper dive into these concepts... Consider Psalm 72 in the ways that David is talking about his son, Solomon, who would take over the kingdom. And he has these hopeful words of how his kingdom will look. And when you pick up in verse 70 uh, of Psalm 72, in verse 2, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute and may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. 
And you could keep on reading, but that's the basic idea. Psalm 72 is a great longer meditation of David in his final words explaining what it's going to be like when a king rules with righteousness and justice. For those of you that know the story, sadly, David's son Solomon did not rule in these ways. And the kingdom was divided and eventually destroyed and exiled. And all the nations didn't come to pay homage to the greatness of Israel. The nations came and destroyed Israel. So, we must consider the way that authority is defined, the way it is described. And then lastly, what we want to do is apply how authority is displayed in our diamond-like gospel church community. So, third and final point, authority displayed. The world presumes to understand that they know what love and authority are about. Yet I believe that the world sees love and authority in its fallen form. Not in its created design, like Genesis 1 and 2, or in its redeemed form, like Jesus and the church. The world understands love and authority as they display it and see it in the world in a two-dimension shadow-like way. However, the local church, its purpose is to be a three-dimensional display of God's love and of God's authority. I want to make it clear that when I'm talking about authority being displayed through the local church, I am not suggesting that there is a perfect church, nor a perfect pastor or group of pastors. But it is through these imperfect realities that the church discovers the love and rule of God, exactly what they should be like. It is through the church that we receive on a weekly basis His Word, His Word which is loving and its rule, which is good for us. We experience them. We taste them every week as we take the Lord's Supper. The local church is what defines God's love and authority for the world. When a church is following its biblical principles from God's Word, relationships and structures should be seen inseparable the same way that your human body has a skeleton and flesh. They work together. A game like baseball and its rules, without which there is no baseball. A marriage and its vows. The relationships of the church, the loving relationships and its structure given to us in the scriptures, the authority of God for us to determine and define who should or should not get baptized later today. Do we just determine who does that by ourselves and go in our swimming pools and go in our bathtubs and say, I'm going to baptize myself? Or does God give authority to an institution with loving relationships in a structure called a covenant through which these relationships can flourish with the oversight of elders and pastors? That is my suggestion for how you should see life-giving, loving authority in the world today. Churches can and should draw lines and exercise authority and correctly pursue rebuke and correction to those who are not in obedience to Jesus Christ. But churches also mess this up, as we have acknowledged. We can't therefore judge the church or any gift 
by its abuses. Many Christians today have a hard time grasping that the church is in fact this prong of the gospel displaying for the world the rule and love of God. And this is because so many of the institutions of the church have compromised love and authority and our definitions of love and authority have been compromised. So I want to challenge you to see the church of Jesus Christ not in its fallen state, but in its redeemed state. Churches are embassies. Embassies of heaven. It's where our church name comes from. If you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. We have, in fact, been given authority. So, Jonathan Lehman, the guy that I mentioned earlier in the service, he tells a story in his little blue book on membership. He says, one time he was studying abroad for college, and he was in um, Europe somewhere. I want to say he's Brussels. Where's Brussels? Belgium. He was in Belgium. And his passport expired while he was doing this study abroad. So, where do you go when your passport expires? You go to the U.S. Embassy because he was a U.S. citizen that went over to study in Belgium. When you go to the embassy, they check your passport, they look at your identification, and they check the records that they have on the computers. They type it in. They say, oh, in fact, yes, you are a citizen of the United States of America. We can confirm or we can deny that you are a citizen. And so in this case, they confirmed, and he renewed his passport and was able to then go home. The church of Jesus Christ is like that embassy. When we do the baptism later in the service, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are stamping passports because God has given us the keys of the kingdom here on the earth. This is Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. We're not going to dive into those texts, but in summary form, the church is to be the prongs that display the rule and authority of God because we have in fact been given the authority through Jesus to exercise authority. But there's confusion, and this confusion leads to spiritual abuse about how this authority should be exercised in the church, how the keys should be applied. And I'd like to clarify for this morning's message, as we close it up, two ways that authority is described and defined, or two different kinds of authority. The first kind of authority is the authority of command, And the second kind of authority is the authority of counsel. Both of these authorities allow somebody to make command, so don't let the words themselves confuse you. By authority of command and authority of counsel, I mean that the authority of command is the right to enforce commands unilaterally. The authority of counsel means you suggest a command, but you do not have the right to enforce it unilaterally. So let me give you an example. God gives the government the authority of the sword. If you don't believe that's in the Bible, read Romans 13, and it says that God has appointed those in government leadership positions the position of authority that they're in. And then he gives them the sword to enact justice and protect its citizens. What does that mean? Well, if you bear the sword, that means you have ultimate authority over life and death, over everything. If you have that ultimate authority, then you have authority over everything else. Taxes, state laws, etc. It just kind of all trickles down from that ultimate authority. That's enforcing unilateral authority of command. Compared to that, husbands 
in the Bible are said to have authority in the home over their wife and children. Now, as a husband, I believe that authority is different than his authority as a parent. If you're a parent, you have the authority to enforce commands and say, no, do this now or you're going to die. And I mean that quite literally. Sometimes, parents, you give rules to say, listen, do not cross the street without looking or holding my hand or you might get run over and die, you know. Don't touch a hot stove or you'll get burned, etc. There are rules that you should enforce for the good of your children. That is authority of command. But the authority of a husband is not, woman, you listen to me now. I have authority here. No, it is counseling authority. The counsel to suggest, the counsel to teach, the counsel to make a culture or environment for the marriage to exist. Husbands possess the authority of counsel. It's real authority. Wives are told in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 to submit to their husbands. The scripture also talks about brothers and sisters in Christ submitting to one another. The Bible teaches, I believe then, that the congregation of the church is the authority of command and that the elders of the church are the authority of counsel. The difference For me, then, is I am not the parent that enforces the rules of the scriptures. Rather, I teach, I pray, I disciple, I build relationships, and I love. And through that, I'm wooing and counseling and suggesting, church, go this way. And then you, collectively, church, you have the keys. Not me, you. Through our teaching, we then suggest to you all, here's what should be done, Embassy Church. You then enforce the commands. Those commands are who should or shouldn't get baptized. Those are who should or shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. Those are who should or shouldn't be actual members of the church. Those commands are how we should or shouldn't spend our money. I don't determine how the money's spent, which is good because that protects me from any sort of misunderstandings that, hey, we need to take a bigger offering so I can get more money and spend it however I want. You, church, you have the ultimate authority on the money and the membership and the doctrine and everything because you have the ultimate authority. Like the sword, you have the keys. And Jesus says in Matthew 16 and 18 that the church has the keys, not the pastors. For any of you that have been aware of church abuses, isn't it true that many times the display is that the elders are doing authority of command and not counsel? They're misusing their authority. This teaching is important. It means that we as pastor elders, we must be like husbands who love and care for their wives and lay down their lives like Jesus did for his bride. Forcing a church member into a particular decision is stupid. It's like twisting your wife's arm to get her to do something you want, husbands. It doesn't work, okay? That's not going to go well for you. I hope that's obvious. Elders should not lead in that way. They should not lord it over in the same way that husbands should not be domineering over their wives. By pointing church members to the word of God and doing so with great patience, this is how we lead. This is the authority that God has given me as your pastor. And the best possible way for me to point you to God's word is to point to the Christ of God's word. So if we take our passage, as I did this week, and I study it, and I think about where else does the Bible suggest that ruling should be done in righteousness and justice. One of the passages you'll find is Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Zechariah 9.9? Well, it should because today is what? Palm Sunday. And this text of scripture is quoted by Matthew when he says in Matthew 21, 4 to 5, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, friends, visitors, my job is to help you behold that the God who had all authority in heaven and on earth humbled himself, became a man, did not ride into Jerusalem as a conquering king with a sword, but on a donkey to die. The dawning of the new day of the resurrection Sunday that we will celebrate next week, that did not come until Christ himself took on the utter darkness of God's wrath, of our sin, and of the chaos of this world. The reason why we can celebrate and the reason why we have authority here on this earth is because Jesus has conquered. He has risen and he is reigning and ruling. He is the ruler that brings light and life. Your pastors and elders do you no good in so much as they point you to this ultimate ruler and king as they try their best by God's grace and fall again and again, but repentantly, hopefully fall and display to you humble-like ruling, ruling with justice, ruling with righteousness that brings light and life to its people. Like the water of a spring day, Jesus is the living water who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, As the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. Brothers and sisters, behold, the one who gave up all authority did not count equality with God something to be grasped and held onto like Adam and Eve grasped for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He gave it away and he became obedient to the point of death. And on the moment of his death, darkness covered the land. We're going to consider that Friday. Come join us, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Darkness and new resurrection life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. The son of God, S-O-N, is the son, S-U-N, that comes and rises over the darkness of this world, the world that is confused about love and authority, the world that is broken, the world that has churches that have pastors that abuse their authority, and church members and congregations that lay heavy burdens on their members rather than the grace and love of Jesus. God, we confess that we are not exempt from that, that Embassy Church is not a perfect church but we do acknowledge now that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is blood that washes away all sin and there is one who rules rightly and justly. And he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our weekly adoration and focus. 
He is worthy of our daily discipline of obeying him and submitting to him because his ways are good and his commands are not to steal from us life, but to give us life. So we thank you for this Christ who did not just die and remain dead, but he is alive, that he is right now alive, and that there is a future hope that no matter how dark our days get, there is light, and it is a glorious light, and it is found in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.